0: Hearts are touched. Amen. Thank you very much. Well, how are you guys doing? Good. I am Pastor Chad, or Pastor Warren, as he said. I don't get called that very often, but you can call me that, I guess, if you want to. I'm excited to be here with you guys. Uh, have you guys been challenged by this series, by the plastics series? Who could summarize what the gist is? What's the analogy with plastic? What's that? What's that? Not being fake, right. Like, did you guys hear about uh, Nate bringing one of these mannequins into uh, Brett's office during the week? You haven't told that story yet? It's fantastic. But Brett is, I mean, he is as solid as a rock. He just walked in and was annoyed. He didn't react. And so then they brought it over to my office, and it absolutely freaked me out. So they put it so that when you walk out my door, it was standing right here. And they're pretty good size. I mean, they're tall. So I walk out. I'm not used to feeling the presence of a large person right here. And so it kind of spooked me a little bit. But anyway, I recovered. I'm okay. Don't worry. Don't worry. How many of you guys uh, study Shakespeare? Any Shakespearean scholars in here? We got one or two hands. How many have ever heard of Shakespeare? Okay. All right. Well, I'm going to, if you're studying Shakespeare, I'm going to give you, this is like, start taking notes because I'm going to give you a real quick crash course in one of his famous plays, The Merchant of Venice. Anybody ever heard of that? The Merchant of Venice? Oh, it's one of my favorites. And there's a scene, and you can kind of see it depicted here artistically, but there's my favorite scene in this play is Act 4, Scene 1. And what you have is the Merchant of Venice is about a merchant that lives in Venice. Tracking? Good, good. And this merchant's name is Antonio. And Antonio's got a real good buddy named Bassanio. You guys, is this sounding familiar? And Bassanio is, he's a young guy, and he really likes the ladies. And there's a particular lady that he's interested in, but she lives on a a far-off island, She's a princess and her name is Portia. Her dad has come up with this great plan to kind of weed out the, the, the weak suitors, the guys that aren't intellectual or strong enough. And so he's got this, this riddle system with these boxes that they have to come in and they have to just select one box. And if they pick the right box, then they win her heart. Well, Bassanio wants to go over there, but he needs an entourage. He needs to have a little cash. And he doesn't have any cash. So he goes to his buddy, the merchant of Venice. And, Antonio, he asked Antonio for a loan. He says, Hey, Antonio, she's the, she's the one for me. She's the perfect one. I just need a little help. So, will you give me some money? And he's like, Well, I don't have, I, I mean, my ships are all out to sea, but when my ships come in, then I'll have way tons of money. But they're out there, and I don't have the money now. So, I'm gonna need to go get a loan. But yeah, I'll, I'll put my assets on the line. And I will put my ships and the money that's supposed to come in, I'll put that on the line to go get a loan. And so he has to go to a loan to get a loan from a guy named Shylock. And Shylock was Jewish. And the Jewish community at that time were very good with money. They had a lot of it and they lent it. And that's part of the reason why they kept getting more and more money because they'd make money on interest. So he goes to Shylock. But see, the Jews in this community in Venice were, were treated horribly. They were looked down upon, they were made fun of, they were just mistreated all the time in the streets. And so Shylock, he had put up with this his whole life. And he hated people like Antonio and Bassanio because those were the kind of people that made fun of him. And so Antonio goes to Shylock and, and, and he says, hey, I need, I need to borrow some money. And Shylock said, well, what can you give me as, as assurance that you're gonna pay it back? What happens if you don't pay it back? What do I get? And he's like, well, I, I don't have any, anything to give you, you know, my ships. And he goes, well, what if your ships don't come in? What do I get? And so he ends up having to put forward just something incredible. Shylock says, I'll lend you the money, but if you don't pay it back, then I get to take a pound of flesh nearest your heart. It just got real. It just got real. And Antonio said he was so confident. He's like, yeah, absolutely, that's fine. So he gets the money from Shylock, They sign the paperwork and it's all legal. Everything's official. Well, so Bassanio goes off to the island. He wins the heart of Portia. He comes back. Everything's you know. He's as he's over there. Everything's great. He's going to live out his days with Portia on this island. He's got this palace. It's it's all going well. But he hears that there was a major storm and all of Antonio's ships were wrecked. And this is his best buddy. And now he knows that Antonio put his life on the line for just for him to have money to go out and meet Portia. And so he, he's like, I got to go back. I got to go back. I got I to I somehow save Antonio. And so there's this scene. That's, that's where we're at in this scene. They're in the courts. That's the Duke sitting on the throne there, and he's the one that oversees this proceeding. But it's a legal contract, and it's binding. And Antonio signed it. And so he's there. He's, the paperwork is there, and you see Shylock pointing He's going, look, it's all written right here. I get my pound of flesh now. And he's thinking this is sweet justice because he didn't really want the money back. He wanted an opportunity to make a point because he had been so mistreated for so long. And so what ends up happening as he's making his case, it looks all but sure, but in walks this young lawyer. Now again, this is Shakespeare, so there can be some cross-dressing. And Portia, Bassanio's lady, she comes in dressed as a young man and as a young lawyer, okay? So she shows up looking like a young guy and she knows the law very well. And so what ends up happening is she starts to ask him questions, Shylock, about this contract. And, she, and he's very willing to t- explain all the details and what ends up happening is he makes it clear that all it stipulates is that he gets a pound of flesh closest to the heart, but what Portia points out is that nothing in the contract says that he can spill any blood when he gets that pound of flesh. Well, now we got a problem. Because he can't cut out a pound of flesh in somebody's chest without spilling a little blood. And so now there's this issue. And, and so Shylock, he kind of stands back and he realizes that that's, that's true. The contract doesn't say anything about that. And he thinks, oh man, I guess I don't get my pound of flesh. But it doesn't stop there. Portia goes on to illustrate that in the law, if you act or enter a contract with the intent of harming or killing somebody, then you're liable and you're guilty. And so now all of a sudden, he's guilty of a crime according to all of his own testimony and according to the contract that he signed because he wanted to take Antonio's life, knowing that a pound of flesh nearest the heart, that's going to kill somebody. And so now he's on the hook and he's guilty and he's pleading for mercy. Now, Antonio had been pleading for mercy and none of it was given by Shylock. He wanted the law. He wanted justice. And so now the tables have turned and there's Shylock and he's down on his face in the courtroom pleading for mercy because what's going to happen is half of his estate, because of his crime, he has to pay half of all of his estate to Antonio and half of the rest of it to the Duke. So the two men sitting there get the shock, of Shylock, and Shylock's really rich. And they get to take all of his means by making money, because he was a money lender. So if he doesn't have any money to lend, he can't make any money, and so he's essentially going to be impoverished and die. And he makes that claim, he says, please you might as well just take my life because if you take all of my money, I have no way to have a life. And he pleads and he pleads. And Antonio, the scene turns to Antonio and Antonio says, give him, give him my half back. And Shylock kind of sulks out of the room and takes off. And what I love about this scene is it illustrates something about the human heart. It illustrates how desirous we are for justice. We think things should be fair, right? When we mess up, we hope they're merciful and they forgive, but when they mess up against us, we want it made right. How many drivers in here? Anybody drive? Okay, how many have parents that drive? You've probably witnessed this scene where you're driving along and, and they're running out a, you know road and they got to cut over and they cut into the next lane or else they're going to go off the road because the, the lane narrows and they cut in front of somebody and they're like, huh, sorry. Anybody ever seen that? And then have you seen the, the other incident where you're driving along and somebody comes in and they cut right in front of you and they're like, what are you doing, pal? Two different reactions, same scenario. You're just sitting in a different seat, right? And that's a, it's an illustration of our heart. We want justice. And when we misunderstand our own forgiveness, then we'll have a very conditional sense of how we should forgive others. When we don't understand how we've been forgiven, then we'll forgive under certain conditions. Depending on how bad something is or how they've wronged us, we'll determine whether or not they should be forgiven. But when one understands what they've been forgiven of, when we truly recognize the depth of our guilt before God, then we're in a position to actually forgive anyone of anything. And so as you guys have been working your way through this series, it's all about being authentic and not being plastic, not being fake. You've talked about confession, when you realize your sin and you confess it. We've talked about repentance, going down, making a U-turn. And tonight we're talking about forgiveness. And the reason why we want to labor these points is because these are often uncomfortable things. It's really not fun when you admit, have to admit that you messed up. And there are times when the things that you're doing, that you're messing up in, you don't want to stop doing them, and sometimes you only change because you got caught, and you really, your remorse is not over the sin, it's just because you got caught, and then this idea of forgiveness, that's really putting yourself out there, but Brett and I, we feel very strongly that the, the actual contentment that you want, and the joy that you are actually pursuing will only be accomplished if you do these hard things, and you start to do them in such a way that they become normative. Is everything okay over here? There's a lot of like, something happened. We good? All right. Did a chair break or something? All right. You good? All right. Fair enough. So we're going to look in the scriptures. We're going to look in Matthew 18. This is something that if you were in the service this past weekend, Brett, kind of teed up this idea in Matthew 18 where Peter asks a question. And he asks a question about how many times is he supposed to forgive or how many times should we forgive somebody that has wronged us? And it's, it's right in the midst of something else that Jesus has been talking about. He's talked about uh, temptation to sin and being careful about temptation to sin. And then he talks about these, the lost sheep. And he, he starts teaching on this idea that the, the, the length to which the father will go to recover a lost sheep. So a sheep that has given into temptation. And then he gets into this the church discipline kind of passage where if somebody, if one of your brothers or sisters is sinning against you, you need to go to them and confront them. And if still they won't repent, then a couple of people go. And then if still, then you, the church leaders get involved and there's this idea that that's the way in which God wants sheep to be restored. And then he, at the tail end of this, Peter asks this question because they're talking about restoring brothers and people that are, are sinning and eventually if they repent, well, how many times do we go through that process? And Peter says, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? So this is chapter 18, verse 21, if you have a Bible. And he, he kind of offers up a suggestion. How many times? Is it seven? Is that, is that a good number? And if you heard Brett talk about it, that, that was really kind of Peter's, he's trying to overachieve at that point, because it was normally considered three, four, maybe five times, but seven, that, that's pretty generous. And so Peter says, how many times, seven? Thinking, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty generous. And Jesus says, I do not say to you seven times, but 70 times seven. Some of yours may say 77 times, or some may say 70 times seven, meaning 490. But either way, the number isn't the key, right? What Jesus is saying is that there is actual no, no limit to the amount of times that if someone sins against you, that you're not going to be in a position to forgive them. There's no limit. And he drives it even further with a parable. And when Jesus tells parables, he's trying to confront and change attitudes and behavior in the people that are listening. And he draws very obvious extremes. And so we're going to see one here in this parable. He goes on to say in verse 23 Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. So you have a king and you have servants, and he's settling these financial accounts. They owe him money. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold and his wife and children and all that he had in payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity... For him, the master of the servant released him and forgave him the debt. So just to give you some, some insight here, a talent is, is worth a lot of money in today's standards. In fact, this number, 10,000 talents, is equivalent to if you... How many people have a job in here and get paid minimum wage? Okay, maybe you get more than minimum wage. Good for you. If you started out at minimum wage, so that the government minimum... And you owed this amount, it would be equivalent to $3.016 billion. That's a big debt. That's a lot of money. And the servant saying, I'll pay you the $3 billion, I, I'll, I'll cover you. That's realistic. There's no way, especially if he's imprisoned, he has no way of making money. And so he's saying, yeah, I'll pay you back. He can't do that. And still he appeals and the master has pity. So remember that number, 3.016 billion. So then the story continues. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a 100 denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him. Sound familiar? Tables have turned though, right? Have patience with me and I'll pay you. He refused and and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. So there again, he tells the guy to go, and actually he tells this guy to go do what he was going to have to go do but was released of. And refused and went to pay him. So when his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant. I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me and should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. So remember that number 3.016 billion? Well, the servant was owed by his fellow servant $5,800. $5,800, so just shy of $6,000, to $3 billion. Jesus is making a very important point here. The level of forgiveness that we have experienced is far greater than I think we understand sometimes. Our heart and our posture towards God prior to Christ was far worse than this kind of debt of $3 billion. No hopes of ever paying that back. And so we, we come to Christ and plead for mercy. And he gives it. He pays that debt on our behalf. And what Jesus is saying is that one of the morals or the standards of the kingdom of God is that he who has been forgiven much is to forgive. And so one of the issues with forgiveness is sometimes we we lose track of what we've been forgiven. But one who understands what they've been forgiven will, will be able to forgive. And there's two sides of forgiveness. There's two sides of it. There's when you have wronged somebody and you need to go seek forgiveness and make amends. And then there's when somebody has wronged you. And I think it's sometimes easy to to stand here and talk about it in theory. But the reality is people have been hurt by abuse, physical and other forms of abuse. People have been physically harmed, emotionally harmed. The hurt that you have experienced is real. And forgiveness doesn't mean you minimize that. The way that you move forward in forgiveness is, first of all, understanding what it is not. Can we throw that slide up? I want you to look at these things. First of all, forgiveness is not excusing sin or claiming that a wrong suffered is now okay. When you forgive somebody, you're not, you're not minimizing what happened. You're not excusing it and saying, oh, that wasn't really, it's okay. It's fine. That's not forgiveness. That's not what the Bible is saying that you do. So you don't excuse sin or claim that what is wrong is now Okay. The second thing, forgiveness is not feeling freeing the guilty of a demand for justice. And I think that we're scared about that because we desire justice. And we think, if I forgive, well, then somehow justice isn't going to be done. They get off the hook. But it's clearly not that either. Paul in Romans 12 gives this powerful statement. He says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink, for by doing so you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. It's not freeing the guilty of a demand for justice, it's giving up your claim of of justice to God and saying, I was wronged and it hurts. But I also know what it's like to be forgiven and I'm going to give this claim that I feel for justice, I'm going to give it to God. And I'm going to let him deal with it because he's actually perfect at it. He's perfect at justice. He's perfect at making things right. And so I'm going to release my claim and give it to him. Third, forgiveness is not denying your hurt or stuffing your anger. It's not pretending like it doesn't hurt, and it's not saying, well, I'm not supposed to be angry and denying that that really sucked. When I think about some of the stuff that happened to me in my past when I was young or even in my family history before I was born, man, if I let it, I could just get fired up. I could replay in the theater of bitterness in my head the things that were done or said to me or my family members and, man, I could get fired up. And it doesn't excuse that those things were wrong. But when I choose to forgive, I'm saying, I'm no longer gonna sit here and demand justice. I forgive them. I, I pardon them and I release my claim and I give it to God and I'm gonna, I'm gonna let him deal with it because he will and he'll do it perfectly. Forgiveness is not a feeling and is not conditional. It's not like you're gonna to get to a point where you're like, I just don't feel like forgiving. I'll get to, you know, maybe in two weeks, I'll feel like it again. It's not a feeling and it's not based on, well, I need to see something in them. And I think this is a, this is a tough one, right? What if somebody wrongs you and they, do, they never repent? They never own up to it. And you know exactly what they did. And in fact, they... They at some point are trying to convince you that what happened didn't really happen and you're misunderstanding it. You just don't remember it right. They never have to own up for it, up to it in order for you to forgive. It's not a conditional thing. It's not I'll forgive if or when. It's we're called to forgive. Forgiveness is not an act of the will. And the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. That's was said by Corey Tenboom, who is a Holocaust survivor, and I'll tell you a little bit about her story, but it is absolutely horrific. Forgiveness is not forgetting. In fact, it requires a lot of memory when you want to forgive, because not only do you have to remember what happened, but you need to remember who you are and who you were before Christ. And you have to remember the extent to which God loves you, and what he went through in order to forgive you. And so it requires remembering. Forgiveness is not trust. When you say, okay, I forgive you, it doesn't mean that all of a sudden you have to trust them again. Trust is something that's built over time. Forgiveness is, again, releasing your claim for justice to God and letting him deal with it. But it doesn't mean that you immediately now have to trust them. In fact, in many cases, that may be a bad idea. If someone has a pattern of hurting you, and you go right back into it and go, well, I, I forgave him, so I guess it's going to be different now. That's a bad idea. And forgiveness is not reconciliation. Forgiveness is not reconciliation. That means when you choose to forgive, and you pardon the wrong done to you, and you release that claim to God for Him to deal with, it doesn't necessarily mean that things are going to be made right between you and that person, especially if they don't repent. If they don't confess and own up to their sin, it's going to be a hard road and you're, you're probably not going to be reconciled. For me, there is stuff in my past with my grandfather and my and other family members that they did things and they're dead. I don't get to talk to them about it. I'm not going to be reconciled to them, but I can choose to move forward with new life in Christ because I've forgiven them. I've made a choice to release my claim for justice and and let God deal with it perfectly rather than me try to surmise ways that I could deal with it imperfectly because that's what it amounts to when we try to pursue our own sense of justice. It's incomplete and it falls short. So understanding what forgiveness is not is the key to moving forward. The next thing is to understand that forgiveness is a release of your claim on justice and that when you understand what you've been forgiven of, you're in a position then to forgive other people. And we love it when other people forgive us. It's hard sometimes to forgive other people though. But the second side of that is making amends. How do we go about pursuing somebody when the Lord convicts you and you realize, yeah, that thing I said about that person that they ended up hearing I said about them, I was wrong. I, I need to own that. And how do you then go through the process of going to them to make it right? Can you throw up that next one? The path to forgiveness. First of all, you have to, okay, skip that. Skip that. We don't have time. I gotta hurry. The idea of making amends or pursuing and seeking somebody's forgiveness is, first of all, you have a humble attitude of repentance. You have to actually admit that you messed up. If you're just going through the motions and you don't actually believe you messed up, none of this, none of the rest of it matters. You have to humble yourself and say, I own that. Even if you didn't mean to sometimes. Okay, I have kids and... Sometimes they'll do things that are absolutely thoughtless when it, when it comes to their siblings. And they'll do things that they, they don't mean to hurt, but they're just being really inconsiderate. And so getting them to recognize that, yeah, you may not have like, intended to do that or to say that, but this is how it came across, and it hurt your brother and sister. And so going, oh, man, all right, and I can see it now. And so when the Spirit of God, when the Holy Spirit convicts you, be humble. Admit it. The second thing is an honest and specific admission of sin. Don't be general. Don't just come up when when you have clearly said or done something and you know exactly what you said or did and it hurt them. Don't just kind of fluff it around. You know what I mean? Like if you call someone a very specific name or thing, Rather than going, hey, I'm sorry, uh, you know, I said that thing kind of like that. That's not it. They know what you said. You know what you said. Be specific and own it. An apology. Actually engage with them and and ask for forgiveness. An apology is not, I'm sorry. It's, will you forgive me? Don't say I'm sorry because sometimes it's like, I'm sorry I got caught because <laughs> now I have to do this thing or I have to come to you and say I'm sorry or I, I don't get to keep doing it because I got busted. And you're really remorseful because you got caught, not because you offended a holy God. So ask for forgiveness. The next one is a willingness to make resolution so make it right. Be willing to make it right. If you broke something, be willing to pay it back. Pay for whatever it takes to make it right again. Six, readiness to share Christ. Every time we mess up, every time we sin against someone else, it's an opportunity to remind ourselves of the gospel and to express it again to them. Hey, I'm, I'm really sorry. And don't say that. Remember, don't say I'm sorry. But say, I messed up. And, I, and I, need you, I need you to forgive me. Will you forgive me? And because I messed up, I realized that I'm a sinner in need of grace. And I'm so grateful for what Christ has done and what he continues to do in my life as I move forward. And so you're able to express Christ and to share Christ. And then try to identify ways that you can avoid sinning and hurting that person again. If it's, a, if it's a personality component and you're like, I just, yeah, I, I don't think before I speak and I just kind of say whatever's on my mind, maybe have a friend that like pinches you or elbows you when you start on a tirade and they and you're like, oh, that's right, I'm about to say something stupid. Yeah. So figure out steps that you can avoid that in the future. Okay. I, uh, I need to land the plane here, Nate. Are you right? Yeah, I've really got to land the plane. 30-second story about Corrie Ten Boom because it's a powerful story. She's 19, she, it was, she was 52 years old when she was imprisoned into a World War II um, camp. She wasn't Jewish, but her family had been harboring Jews in the Netherlands. And so she was captured along with her family and taken to a, multiple different camps. Her father ended up dying shortly after their arrest, her brother ended up contracting tuberculosis and dying, and her and her sister were kept together, but they would travel from camp to camp. And they were moved around to different prisoner camps. And eventually, her sister would die, and then she was actually let out on a clerical error. She was let out of prison because someone made a mistake on a piece of paper, And she was released. Two weeks later, all of the women in that camp that were her age were were killed. And so she ends up getting out and she commits her life to telling people about the grace of God, about the life that comes through Jesus Christ. And she's in Germany after the war and she's there to preach about God's forgiveness. And at this meeting, she looks up and she sees one of the prisoners or the, the guards of one of the camps that she was in. And it was a camp where she was absolutely humiliated. They would strip her and all the women and they'd make them walk and parade in front of the guards. And there's this guy then she recognizes him. She sees his, his prisoner or his guard cap brown coat and he comes forward at the end of the service and he doesn't recognize her but she recognizes him but he reaches out and he asks her for forgiveness after she just got done preaching about forgiveness and at that moment she had a choice to make that was she going to be live a life in freedom true freedom or was she going to stay in the prison of bitterness and resentment towards all that had happened. And so she reached out and she took the man's hands and she said, I forgive you, brother. And she called him brother because he had given his life to Christ and had repented. And she was able to transfer her claim of justice to the Lord and let him deal with it. And she was able to move forward in unity and peace with the very man that imprisoned her. That's the power of new life in Christ. When Christ comes into your life and you recognize what you have actually been forgiven of, it puts you in a position to forgive other people. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you so much for your love. Thank you for the the powerful example that Christ gives us of a master who forgives so much, way more than his servant can possibly pay back. And that we recognize we are in that same situation. We are in a position, Lord, where we could never earn back. There's, there are no amount of good deeds we could do to ever get close to paying you back. And I pray that we would not be like that servant that turns around and when somebody has wronged us or hurt us, that we would be stingy with the same forgiveness you've given us but that we would be willing to forgive, to trust your ways, which are much higher than our ways, and walk